Our guest today is a retired urologist and Navy captain who was awarded the Navy's Meritorious Service Medal for his long and distinguished military career. His interest in medical history has led him to become an expert on the Navy's first hospital on the West Coast. This is Clinician's Roundtable, and I'm Dr. Andrew Wildner. With me today is Dr. Thomas Snyder. Dr. Snyder is the founder of the Society for the History of Navy Medicine and currently the Secretary of the Naval Order of the United States Foundation. Dr. Snyder, welcome to ReachMD. It's awfully nice to be aboard today. Dr. Snyder, you've always been interested in history. How did your experiences as a physician and military officer lead to your current projects? You have to understand that I started out as a history major in undergraduate school at Lafayette College in Pennsylvania. The reading was a big burden and science was so much easier for me. But I've continued to have an abiding interest in history throughout my medical and my naval career. And so there was sort of this natural combination that when I retired and actually had time to attend to other interests that I could combine my Navy interest and my medical interest and just very conveniently across the Napa River from where I live is located the first Navy hospital on the West Coast on Mare Island, the old naval shipyard at Mare Island. Yeah, tell us more about that. The spine of the historical narrative, of course, is correspondence between hospital commanders and the Navy's Bureau of Medicine and Surgery back in Washington, D.C., and it turns out that's all in the National Archives. So starting in my retirement year in 2003, I would go back to D.C. once a quarter to the National Archives, present my researcher's card, and these archivists, bless their souls, would pull out these wonderful dusty old books reaching back to mid-19th century when the Navy first developed its presence on the West Coast about two years after California's statehood in 1850. So once a quarter, I would go back to do the research. This basically took me right up through World War II and then finally into the 50s. What is the Society for the History of Navy Medicine, and why did you found it? Sure, that's another story. So when you're back east, I'm a Californian, you understand. When you're back east and in Washington, D.C., you're in the center of power, and one of the things you always do is you make your obeisance to the powers that be at the Bureau, and there is a small historical section at the Bureau of Medicine and Surgery. I got to know the historians there very well, and about two or three years into my project, one of the historians said to me, you know, there are several people like you who are interested in this narrow little corner of history, that is to say the history of Navy medicine or the history of maritime medicine. But what we really need, we need an academic home for people who share your interests. We need a society. Well, being one to never turn down an opportunity or a challenge, I said, well, fine, with your help, I'll start the society. And so in about 2006, the historian at the Bureau, Andrei Sobachinsky, and I established Society for the History of Navy Medicine. We've promoted it amongst former or retired and active naval medical personnel that would be doctors, nurses, psychologists, and the like. And we also promote it amongst academics and graduate students. We charge 20 bucks a year voluntary volunteer dues. And with this, we actually have a biennial book prize. We also sponsor travel grants for graduate students whose papers are accepted at the panels that we mount at various academic meetings. 
And we also have a research grant program for graduate students who need extra help in researching some topic related to the history of Navy or the history of maritime medicine. It's kind of a very small corner of history and of the history of medicine. Our aim is to promote interest in this as much as we can. So we do a fair amount of research to graduate students. That sounds fantastic. It sounds like they gave you the ball and you ran with it. Good for you. It's been fun. We've grown to somewhere north of 175 members from around the world. And as I say, these are active and retired military. They're academics. As a matter of fact, right now, the executive director of our society is the former chief of history at Old Dominion University in Virginia. So we have real historians amongst us as well. If you're just joining us, you're listening to Clinician's Roundtable. I'm Dr. Andrew Wilner and I'm speaking with Dr. Thomas Snyder about his civilian and military medical careers and his research in medical history. Dr. Snyder, I want to get back to that first West Coast hospital. It is the first one, and the first and the last of anything always have some interest, but it's not that clear to me why you would devote so much time to this. What have you learned about this hospital and the Navy? So California became a state in 1850. Now, the United States had had a small squadron of ships in the Pacific since about 1821. This small squadron before California became a state would be homeported in Chile or in another South American country. But once California became a state, of course, it was in our interest to find a place where our squadron could be homeported. It turns out the Navy had ultimately sent two different panels of naval officers to California to seek out a place for this squadron. Interestingly enough, they were never sent to Southern California, only to the San Francisco Bay Area. And ultimately, Commodore Sloat and his group in 1854 decided that this island up in the north end of the San Francisco Bay, protected from weather and, I might add, from the predations of the Royal Navy, which was at the time the naval hegemon of the world, this little island, Mare Island, was selected as the anchorage for the Pacific Squadron. When Commander Farragut, who went on to become Admiral Farragut, famous in the Civil War Battle of Mobile Bay, when he was quoted as saying, damn the torpedoes full of speed ahead. When Farragut came to Mare Island to establish the Navy Station in 1854, he brought with him a chart of Mare Island. And on this chart, right just about at the geographic center of the island, was marked a 400-foot square identified as Naval Hospital. So it's clear that the Navy intended to develop a hospital in California right from the outset. Well, within years after the establishment of the Navy Yard, small ships were typically used for medical facilities in the earlier years of the Navy Yard. And then finally, an unused granary was converted for hospital use in about 1863. Now, Congress had appropriated funds for this, but then the Civil War got in the way, and basically the East Coast forgot about this little squadron on the West Coast. So the local doctors took the bull by the horns and created their own hospital, a granary. Finally, however, the first purpose-built naval hospital was built and opened in 1871. This was a hospital designed by Philadelphia architect MacArthur, who had actually built two other hospitals for the Navy, one in Annapolis and one in Philadelphia, so he had a track record. It was clear that MacArthur had never stepped foot in California. I have two vignettes that I like to tell. 
first the hospital was entirely made of masonry, remember this is earthquake country, and that the water supply for the hospital was going to be water collected from rain from the roof. Of course, MacArthur didn't realize that it doesn't rain, literally does not rain in California from about the end of April until the beginning of November. So water was always an issue with that first hospital. Nevertheless, it was palatial. It was a gorgeous facility and served the sailors, the Marines, and actually civilian employees of the Navy Yard up until the Mare Island earthquake of 1898. Wow. I want to ask you a general question, since you've studied this, about the strategy of military medicine. Has it changed over the years? I know, like, mass units and things like that. What does the Navy do differently now? What have they learned about medicine that they used to do, and now they've got a better way? That's a lecture in its own. In fact, I just recently gave a lecture on Navy medicine in the Middle East, starting with our Barbary Wars in the early 19th century and compared it with now. As you might imagine, early medicine, first of all, we had no notion of what caused wound infections. We had no notion of what represented shock or how to treat shock. And if anybody was wounded in the belly or in any body cavity, basically they died because the surgical art had not been developed. And if you got wounded in a limb, you know, you got wounded in a leg or an arm, the standard treatment was amputation and the mortality rate from amputation because of infection was 80% or 90% in some situations. I mean, contrast that with today's Navy medicine or Army medicine. I mean, the Navy puts its medical teams as close to the front as possible because we've learned the lesson of the golden 10 minutes or the golden half hour. The sooner we can get semi-definitive health care to a wounded soldier or Marine, the better chances they will have of surviving. Now we stop hemorrhage, we treat shock, we treat infection, we have definitive surgery that's provided, or at least life-saving surgery, that's provided very close to the front within minutes to halves of hours or hours that is absolutely remarkable in the benefits to our sailors, our Marines, our soldiers. I have to add also that military medicine has been very successful in dealing with the non-combat causes of death. Say before the Franco-Prussian War of 1871, it was a truism that more soldiers died of disease than they did of wound. The Franco-Prussian War, the Germans had actually immunized their soldiers against smallpox. As a result of that simple act of smallpox vaccination, that statistic was changed for the Franco-Prussian War. More men died of their combat wounds than they died of disease. We Americans didn't do so well in the Spanish-American War. Again, our non-combat deaths exceeded our combat deaths. But after that, because of the combination of our understanding of infection, of effective public health measures, and then definitive surgeries, the treatment of shock, the use of blood transfusion, which really started at the end of World War I but was really institutionalized during World War II, and then now modern critical care, including intensive care units and airplanes that the Air Force provides to our soldiers, Marines, and sailors, Military medicine has made spectacular advances so that the death rate from combat wounds now is somewhere around 2 or 3%. And when you think about the sophistication of the weapons that we're up against, the results are just startlingly good. Dr. Snyder, I think we're out of time. It's been a pleasure to speak with you. I have a lot more questions, and we're going to have to do this again. Many thanks to you for joining us today. I look forward to it, and it's been fun. I'm your host, Dr. Andrew Wilner. To access this episode and others in this series, and to download the ReachMD app, 
please visit ReachMD.com where you can be part of the knowledge. We encourage you to leave comments and share this program with your colleagues. Thank you for listening.